I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. My face is itchy. <laughs> You're growing a beard. I'm so itchy. He has a quarantine beard. How do people do this by choice? I, I guess I'm doing it by choice. I mean, now you are. Start as an experiment. I will not lose to myself. <laughs> how, how, how are you liking it other than being itchy? I can't say I've gotten a lot of compliments because nobody has seen me. <laughs> yeah. In any case, what are you bringing us today to, to distract me from these facial feelings? Uh, so today we are going to be talking about censorship in Hollywood. Ooh. Uh, specifically the Motion Picture Production Code, which is often just referred to as the Hayes Code. You've been bad, Mr. Hayes. He's not the worst person in the story, actually. <laughs> little spoiler there. I mean, I thought President Hayes was dead by then, but I, you learn something new every day. Different Hayes. Uh, so the code was a set of moral guidelines that was mostly self-imposed by the major U.S. motion picture studios of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the Hayes code is often talked about like it is the first time censorship ever happened in the movies. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all. <laughs> um, censorship was there from the start. Mm -hmm. um, you know, anytime you create something new, you're going to have people who be like, oh, no, this newfangled thing. It's bad. Mm -hmm. It's the devil. Well, was it? Was, was movies the devil? I mean, there are definitely like devils portrayed in movies, but like. Oh, well, there you go. Open and shut case. As I said. From the start, different types of censorship. You know, that's not allowed in this town. Don't film that. We're going to run you out. We're going to burn your place down. Ooh. All that type of stuff. In 1913, uh, Ohio formed a board for censorship um, mm -hmm. to kind of combat what was being made in movies. Um, and they reviewed and approved all films that were going to be shown in Ohio. And if you didn't... Or if you showed something without their approval, you would be fined. Mm -hmm. um, they also charged a fee to approve it mm -hmm. so they could make money off of it. But, you know, we're going to arrest you if you don't. This board was probably a paid position that had to come from somewhere, right? Fining everyone who wasn't doing it <laughs> seems like the best thing there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, because of this, a lawsuit came up. Uh, Mutual Film Corporation argued that it violated their freedom of speech, and that it also interfered with interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. um, so on February 23rd, 1915, the Supreme Court ruled in Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio, uh, and it was a 9-0 decision that films were not protected by the First Amendment and were not considered free speech. Because they hadn't invented sound yet, no one was actually talking. I guess there's that. <laughs> but, you know, your little little speech card. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. No freedom of speech there. <laughs> Whatever you're, you're showing us, not freedom of speech. In 1916, movie studios uh, created the National Association of Motion Picture Industry, um, which was their first attempt to try to answer the demand for censorship mm -hmm. and stop more states from creating their own boards. Because it's very expensive if you have to have the Ohio cut and the Pennsylvania cut and the Nevada cut. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. E exactly. 
their board didn't really work great. <laughs> there, there just wasn't a lot that they could do. And states were still like, well, we don't like what you're saying. So we're going to say what we want to say. Mm-hmm. But even with censorship boards popping up like this locally, there were still a lot of things that like weren't being censored. Mm-hmm. In 1915, um, a movie called Inspiration by Mutual Film Corporation was released and it was the first film that was not like a porno mm-hmm. um, that had a woman that was fully nude. Mm-hmm. Um, her role was that, though, of like an artist's model, like being painted or sculpted. Mm-hmm. So the board allowed it because it was artistic and not sexual. So that's why they threw me out of the museum that time. There's a line there. Yes. Got it. Yep. Cool. Yeah, so if I would have been sketching you okay. as you walked around nude, yeah. it probably would have been okay. Now we know. Now we know. The weird thing is it was the Museum of Science and Industry. <laughs> um, in the 1920s, there were several big name crimes and events that rocked Hollywood mm-hmm. and the film industry. Um, in September 1920... Um, model, actress, and former Ziegfeld star Olive Thomas uh, accidentally ingested mercury mercury bichloride um, and died. And it's believed that she was drunk and mistook it for something else. But uh, it was prescribed to her husband, Jack Pickford, Mary Pickford's brother, um, for his chronic syphilis. This led to a whole lot of press stories that uh, accused him of being responsible, that he tricked her to take it or killed her. Mm-hmm. You know, the way newspapers are. Mm-hmm. It just becomes another story on top of a story and gets way exaggerated. Right. So that was the f- one of the first, like, major ones. Then the following year, uh, actress Virginia, Virginia Rapp was found ill at a party thrown by another actor, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And she died a few days later. Uh, he was accused, and the press again went crazy with it. William Randolph Hearst was especially into, like, he he didn't really like the movie industry, so he was like, <laughs> yes, there's a reason to tear these people apart, mm-hmm. and went crazy as well. There were three trials that followed, the mm-hmm. first two having hung juries, and the third with a not guilty verdict. Did they ever catch the person who hung all those jury members? That seems like the bigger crime. I love you. Um, And then the following year, the murdered body of director William Desmond Taylor was discovered, which might sound familiar because I talked about this in the Lucy Maud Montgomery episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Mary Miles Minter was one of the people who first played Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. And she was accused of killing him along with like a bunch of other Hollywood actors. (laughs) A bunch of other actors accused, you mean? Yes. She wasn't accused of killing a bunch of actors. No, no. There was like 10 different people that were all like accused and under suspicion and had their careers completely ruined. All for this one murder. And there's no proof that any of them did it. It was still a cold case to this day. But all these events and a lot of other um, deaths due to drug overdoses and various stories of, you know flirtation and re- different like relationships between stars and everything didn't exactly
exactly paint like a great picture. Yeah, it was when... a big seedy underbelly uh, behind yes. the glitz and the glamour. Yeah. Addiction, betrayal. Yes. And yeah. so though the 1920s were much more free time mm-hmm. compared to the Victorian era and stuff like that, <laughs> there was still, you know, a heck of a lot of conservative politics and communities and influencers. Mm-hmm. And then in May of 1922, a book called The Sins of Hollywood uh, was published anonymously. And it was, quote, a group of stories of actual happenings reported and written by a Hollywood newspaper man. Mm -hmm. And it had chapter titles like Dope and Strip Poker and Paddle Parties (laughs) and Whiskey Fumes and Orange Blossoms and A Movie Queen in a Broken Home. None of this helped. Okay? None of this helped. <laughs> it also doesn't sound like really great writing. You can read it. We're going to link it. Okay. <laughs> I cool. found it online. So, yeah, none of this was going great. And in 1921 alone, 37 states introduced over 100 different movie censorship bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more censorship boards were happening. Mm-hmm. The movie studios, realizing that they were going to have to comply with hundreds, if not thousands, of laws, right. uh, decided to put more of an effort into self-regulating. Mm-hmm. In 1922, the MPPDA was founded, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, and about 70 to 80 percent of the companies in the U.S. were members. The, the film companies. Film companies, yes. Um, and its main focus was on public relations to make sure that Hollywood remained financially stable. It mm-hmm. needed its backers. Because with, with the image of Hollywood as this den of sin, yes. producing things to, to send to your children. Yep. Yeah. So William H. Hayes was hired in January 1922 to oversee the MPPDA. Very similar decision like Major League Baseball made a few years earlier with Kennesaw Mountain Landis that you talked about. Mm -hmm. Like, we're going to put this person in charge to make sure things are okay. So was he also a federal judge? He was a politician. Oh, that's the same. Sure. (laughs) Uh, So before doing this, uh, he was the manager to Warren G. Harding's campaign for presidency. Sure. Okay. Uh, And then uh, he served as the postmaster general for two years. (laughs) And what is less sinful than the male? Well, you know, while he was there, it is when the Teapot Dome scandal happened. Sure. Cool. um, Which, if you aren't familiar, um, in 1922, an investigation started to look into favorable leases of government land to oil companies. And it's considered the largest and most corrupt act of American government until Watergate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was... Kind of involved. A little bit. He wasn't like the one stirring the pot. Right. But he, but was, he, was, he was like, was hey, the tea. here's yeah. the salt. Okay. I cut up some carrots for you. This is getting away from us, I think. Is it? So a big focus on his position um, outside of image was to save money. Mm-hmm. Studios, as I said, were required by state law to pay the censor boards for each foot of film and every title card that was edited. And, like, also just for them, like, hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. Please approve us. Have I, to pay you money. That's one way to standardize rates between, like, a feature film and a short and, like, a, a two-reeler. Like, yeah, it's by foot of film. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Um, studios also had to pay to supplement and distribute the different versions of the film um, to match every state's law, mm-hmm. as you kind of mentioned earlier. So in 1924, Hayes introduced a set of recommendations which studios were advised to follow, and it was asked that filmmakers describe to his office the plots of the pictures they were going to make. Um, and the hope was these standards would limit the number of additional cuts needed by those state-by-state censors. Mm-hmm. Again, it didn't do much, because it's like, <laughs> here's this thing, but producers are like, but I want to make this movie, mm-hmm. so I'm going to do it. Okay, it's not a creative position, so they didn't get a very creative guy from the no, sound of it. No, Like, uh, n- not a lot of art is coming out of the post office. It mostly goes into it. Yeah. But but imagine if they had. <laughs> I, uh-huh, uh-huh. But let me pitch you this. <laughs> Hayes was involved in a lot of things other than just this part of mm-hmm. the film industry. Um, in 1925, he created Central Casting. Um, It was a casting bureau to regulate the thousands and thousands of people that were flocking to Hollywood as extras. Mm -hmm. And it had four main goals. To get rid of the high fees extras were charged by private employment agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, To ensure that they were paid legally. um, Discouraging also people from just flocking to Hollywood with no plan. And then it also would keep steady employment for those who were already qualified as extras. Right. It would be one pool that all the studios could pull from. hmm Which is like, okay, that's nice. But then he's not a very nice guy. There's other stuff we're going to talk about <laughs> later. So as I said, first, this, this attempt by him, not going so great. Not a lot of people following it. Um, So in 1927, he suggested that studio executives form a committee to further the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And it included the head of all the major companies like MGM, Fox, and Paramount. Right. And they created the list of don'ts and be carefuls, which were (laughs) basically all Hayes' ideas just written out more. Right. So it outlined 11 things uh, that... You weren't supposed to do in movies. And then 26 things to take special care with. Uh-huh. Like, maybe they can be done, but you got to do them the right way. And you really should avoid certain things. So the list of 11 included swearing and saying, God, Jesus, Christ, hell, anything like that. Oh. Unless it was referring to religion. Oh, okay. So our last episode would be safe. Yes. Okay. I'm praying to you, Jesus. That's fine. But like... What the hell, Jesus? Not okay. (laughs) Not okay. It also sounds like a line from a buddy comedy where Jesus is your roommate that won't do the dishes. Right? This also included not only speaking, but like mouthing the words. You couldn't mouth them. Mm -hmm. Also banned any uh, actual or suggestive nudity, including silhouettes, romantic or sexual relations between people of different races, anything to do with homosexuality, prostitution, promiscuity... STIs, childbirth, Mm -hmm. uh, white slavery, illegal drug use or trafficking, any type of ridicule of the clergy, and uh, any willingful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Mm -hmm. Which is a weird one because in so many ways they did not follow that. (laughs) They mean white people. (laughs) That's all they mean. They just mean white people. The 26 special care items was basically anything to do with violence. So arson, firearms theft or dynamite 
dynamiting things that like showed you how to do it. Like mm-hmm. you can blow stuff up, but don't show how you did it because people might take inspiration. Mm-hmm. Also, same with like murder. You can cu- murder can happen. Just don't show people how you murdered someone because they might try it. You can find a body, but yes, yeah. Um, also, the use of the flag, basically anything to do with international relations. You also weren't supposed to show, like, any type of sympathy for criminals or resistance to authority or non-respectful attitudes towards public characters or institutions or, like, anything to do with law enforcement. Like, Mm -hmm. don't do it. Anything romantic. No obsessive kissing, seduction, anything you can imagine. No couples in bed together. No negative opinions against the institution of marriage. Nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. No cruelty or branding of people or animals. No surgeries. Couldn't show <laughs> surgery. That well, was well. You had to be careful with surgery. Well, and the branding of animals. <laughs> yeah. How often did that come up? What What were pre-code westerns like? I don't know. Because <laughs> this is before like the golden age of the western. Yes. So why else were people branding animals? Poor people. Why was that a big thing? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But that that's kind of the gist of the code. Mm-hmm. The, the don'ts and the be carefuls. So Hayes created a committee to oversee using the code. But again, there wasn't a lot they could do. So, um, so there were no enforcement provisions. Basically. Mm-hmm. You had your don'ts. You had your be carefuls. There was no or else. Yeah. And like studios were like, okay, we'll follow it. But then there were a lot of loopholes Mm -hmm. that allowed producers to override it. The committee did a lot more like negotiating than forcing. They were like, okay, well, if you're going to do, can you just like cut out like 30 seconds? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they can do this instead. Mm -hmm. And then they were basically left with, okay, or no, I won't. (laughs) And that was that. They didn't have a reason and movies that, didn't follow the code, typically made more money. Yeah, I do love watching torture and finding out how to do murders. <laughs> Especially if it ends with an interracial marriage. I I mostly want to know what was their example of a movie that was like, wow, that really showed me how to murder someone too much. <laughs> That's what I want to know. I'm paying my nickel and I'm going to find out finally which end does the bullet come out of. <laughs> So 1929 was kind of a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, at the start of that year, there were over 23,000 movie theaters across the U.S. alone, and most were now wired for sound, even though that was just, you know, a new technology of a couple of years. Mm-hmm. 50% of all films were being censored locally, and it was rumored that Hearst was going to put a call out for federal censorship in addition to there being several senators who were pushing new bills to censor and new religious groups popping up and protesting everything Hollywood was doing. Mm-hmm. Just a lot, lot going on. And uh, one thing that happened that year was the first Academy Award ceremony that was created by the MPPDA in hopes of creating prestige and bettering their image and the artistic merit of Hollywood. Like, we're not all bad. Yes, we also wear tuxedos. We're so pretty. And have Bob Hope show up. Bob Hope wasn't there the first time, but still. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, that summer, two men, Martin Quigley, um, who was extremely Catholic and an editor of the motion picture Herald, uh, along with Daniel A. Lloyd, a, a Jesuit priest, um, wrote a new motion picture production code um, that was very much in their religious principles. Mm-hmm. It was not like bullet pointed. It was it was very like here are long paragraphs about morals and the focus and how we don't want to sin. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> so the draft was accepted by Hayes and formally put into place by the MPBDA on March thirty first, nineteen thirty. Which is the anniversary of the day this is coming out. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh. The code held the same principles Hayes' original one did, but they really just, like, shoved in morals. Mm-hmm. And, like, your moral well-being and your soul as much as they possibly could. Um, and it was summarized into three general principles. First one was, no picture shall be produced, which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience will never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. But what if the criminals are the good guys? No! Like in Fast Five. Fast Five would be against this code. Yes. Then I'm against it. Uh, The second one is, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. Mm-hmm. And three, law, nature, or human shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. Ooh, Fast Five also has someone pregnant out of wedlock, so they wouldn't be high on that either. They would like none of this. Okay. It would, that Fast Five would have done great. Any of the Fast and Furious movies would have done great pre-code. Yeah, I mean, for one, color. That would have blown people's mind. <laughs> pre-code is when Technicolor was coming out. Let's please remember that. Okay, uh, V8 engines. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made them lose their minds. The existence of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> one one thing I had for uh, later on, but we can talk about now, is that there were liberal publications that attacked the code. They mm-hmm. stated all of this, that, you know, if you never presented a crime in a sympathetic light, like, law and justice would be the same, and, like, you couldn't tell the story of the Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. That that would mean that they're just criminals, and we couldn't tell that story. Right. Many other people agree with you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Boston Tea Party and dragging a bank vault through the streets of Rio, one and the same to me. Same thing. The exact same, same thing. Same thing. Again, they put this out there. More more standards, more rules. We've rewritten it. Still lacked enforcement. I understand a need for a, a fledgling industry to protect itself by, by accepting standards in, in a time of crisis. But if you're going to make the same mistake every <laughs> single time, my patience wears thin. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, you know, we this is when we got movies like Dracula, Frankenstein, King Kong, The Public Enemy, all things that went against the censors. And the code. For very sexy men. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Great Depression was also happening, and this led to studios seeking income, however they could, which meant half of our movie theaters have closed. We are going to make movies people want to see. Mm-hmm. Which means Frankenstein and King Kong and the public enemy. Yes. Monkey <laughs> wants to have sex with woman. Destroys airplane. Yep. That's the movie people want. There were people that were, like, in place, again, to 
enforce the code, but they didn't do much. Uh, we had <laughs> Jason Joy and then his successor, James Wingate. Um, they were pretty unenthusiastic and ineffective. Uh, that is something I like to see in a censor's office, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> the um, first film that Joy reviewed was called The Blue Angel. Joy was like, great, pass, you're good, with no changes. And it was considered completely indecent by California censors mm -hmm. in the state where he reviewed it. <laughs> well, you know, there's California and then there's California. Yeah. Well, and then there was, you know, just the amount of films that they had. There were 500 films coming in each year for review. And mm -hmm. they had a very small staff um, and were just kind of like shooting stuff through like, yep, yep. It's fine. Keep going. And it's their job to watch these. Do you think uh, Oscar voters actually watch those screeners? Huh? Well, they yeah. weren't even... They, I think they were reading them oh, okay. at that oh. point. I think they had to submit it beforehand. That makes more sense. So in uh, 1933, the Roman Catholic National Legion of Decency was founded and began to rate films themselves. Mm -hmm. um, which put a lot of pressure on the studios along with, again... More religious and moral groups um, that were like, we're going to boycott it because it's immoral. Mm -hmm. In 1934, uh, the PCA was founded, the Production Code Administration. This was to really start enforcing stuff. Um, <laughs> and Hayes appointed Joseph Breen, who had worked for him for a while. And I got I got some conflicting research here. Sure. Um, but it seems that either either or Breen or Quigley um were very encouraging before this to Catholic leaders to step up their campaign against the industry. Mm -hmm. Um both being extremely Catholic themselves. And it might have led to the Catholic Legion of Decency being founded. Mm -hmm. Um and they also got some bankers behind them, which meant studio backing right. so they were kind of shaping this happening they were making their office necessary yes because it's not necessary until the money spigot turns off yeah yeah um and for the first time the decisions what is now the pca but like this code enforcing committee mm -hmm. were actually binding no film could be exhibited without a stamp of approval from the pca and if you attempted to you'd be fined twenty five thousand dollars Mm -hmm. um, and the studios approved and agreed to enforce it to avoid more of this outside involvement of religious groups and politicians. And it went into effect on July 1st, 1934. Um, and Breen is the one who was, like, notoriously rigid. He was the dictator of everything mm -hmm. to do with movies. So with the code going into effect, it touched basically everything, not just regular movies, but cartoons that were shown at the mm -hmm. theaters. Um, there's a Mickey Mouse cartoon that couldn't show a cow udder. Well, you know how those co cows can be. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and Betty Boop went from having a flapper dress to a house dress because mm -hmm. mm -mm -mm, too seductive. Um, and they then, already toned her down from being a dog person to being just a person person. <laughs> How much less seductive do, do you want? Much less. Okay. Uh, MGM's Anna Karenina were told that they had to cut the illegitimate child that was in the novel. Mm -hmm. 
and there could be no scenes in the bedroom, and married couples much, must be presented positively. You know. Everyone has to be happy in marriage. <laughs> Anna Karenina, that novel about happy marriages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, King Kong was also re-released uh, after the code enforcement with a lot of cuts and completely deleted scenes. So you couldn't learn how to kill a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's a story of um, the Western The Outlaw that came out in 1943, um, produced by Howard, Howard Hughes. Um, apparently, this movie was denied a certificate for years because the advertising focused on the actress's chest. Mm-hmm. So a did lot the of cleavage. So did the audience, I would assume. Uh, and um, they were like, uh-uh, no doesn't go with the code. And it took Hughes a long time to be like, that's just the advertising, not the movie. The movie <laughs> doesn't break the code. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually he was given a certificate and could show it. I think one of the biggest things that people probably forget about, because you automatically want to think of like, oh yeah, we couldn't look at scantily cladded women and, yeah. and murders. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big things that was um, censored was politics. Warner Brothers wanted to make a film on Nazi concentration camps, and it was forbidden because it put another country's institutions and prominent people in an unfavorable light. Mm -hmm. And a whole lot of other anti-Nazi films were not allowed to be made because of this. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until 1938 that when the FBI unearthed um, and prosecuted a Nazi spy ring that Warners was able to produce a film about Nazis, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. And it's considered the first anti-Nazi film from a major studio. Took you long enough. I mean, it... it uh... Well, they were, I think they were finally able to because there was like a real thing that happened like in the newspapers here. So it's yeah. like, well, they're posting about it and writing about it in the paper we should be able to make a movie about this. Right, right. That's how they finally got around it. And that opened up more doors for movies to be made that covered the subject. And the first one specifically about foreign infiltrating agents. Yes. It's not so much, it, it's not anti-Nazi regime. It's, you know, pro-American independence. Exactly. Yeah. We're okay with this because you're talking about us here. Mm -hmm. Don't go make a film about them over there. <laughs> Which is very messed up. <laughs> Warner Brothers actually, uh, all their movies were banned in Germany after making this film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is exactly what the code is trying to prevent. It's it's No, actually, they don't care about other countries. They only care about here. Sure, but <laughs> it, it's an arm of the industry. I'm sure they cared about foreign receipts. There were, of course, movies being made outside of the mainstream studios that did not follow the code. Mm -hmm. um, there were some anti-Nazi films that were being made by smaller studios that mm -hmm. got through the mm -hmm. censors. The code did lead to growth of certain types of movies. Mm -hmm. um, for example, literary adaptations, especially after the 1933 success of Little Women, when they're like, hey, we can't like make these shoot 'em up movies we want to. Mm -hmm. We can make this book into a movie. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> Feel good stories about uh, families in the 1800s. Yep. We got a lot more of those around <laughs> then because of this. There is nothing objectionable in Meet Me in St. Louis, although they do show you how to murder somebody on Halloween. The five-year-old child 
buries her dolls alive constantly. <laughs> well, too too special. There's accusations of child abuse. I don't know. There's a lot of things in Meet Me in St. Louis that are kind of questionable. And, uh, you know, not to forget our good buddy Hayes. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1934, he also created a list of about 117 people who he thought their personal lives uh, were so bad that they could not appear in films in Hollywood and were banned. Because mm-hmm. we're already not doing enough to make everyone's lives terrible. <laughs> By the late 1940s and 1950s, the code began to weaken again. Mm-hmm. It did not really last a super long time at that level of censorship. Part of this is because TVs came into being and movies needed to offer something people couldn't get in their home. Mm-hmm. And TVs were like TV shows were censored even more. Right. Um, so they needed to offer more. (laughs) Also, foreign films were now a bigger competition. Let me see Um, that silhouette. Uh, so in 1948, um, the Supreme Court ruled in the United States versus Paramount Pictures that the movie industry had been found to violate antitrust laws and the studios couldn't own their own theaters anymore. Learn more by listening to a previous episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since the studios didn't own their theaters, they couldn't keep foreign films out anymore, Mm -hmm. um, which meant those films could now be shown anywhere and they didn't have to follow the same codes. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, So this meant there were a lot more films coming into, into the country that challenged a lot of the traditional rules that these movies were being made to follow. Mm -hmm. A lot more things that tackled different things to do with gender roles, sexuality, prejudices. You could finally have a movie where you hate the cops as long as they're French cops. Yeah. 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 Uh, In 1952, another Supreme Court case overruled the 1915 decision on film's First Amendment rights, and they said that they were entitled to them. And this meant that state boards could no longer ban films. Hooray! Yeah. Take that, Ohio. The code still existed, but yeah, locally, they could not say, you cannot show your film here. Mm -hmm. Culture also began to shift a bit, too. A boycott by the Legion of Decency was meaning less and less. Mm -hmm. Even though it never meant that much to begin with in some places. (laughs) Um, So Hayes actually did a study after the code was fully implemented and found that moviegoers were doing the opposite of what the Catholic Legion was recommending. Mm-hmm. Or like anytime they recommended a movie be boycotted, people were going to see that movie instead. Nice. So in some areas that were more conservative, yeah, the movie was failing. But in other places, they were like, whatever, I'm going to go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never told anyone for well, like years. why would you? Why <laughs> in his position? What? <laughs> well, you're just going to keep this quiet. So in 1954, Breen retired from the PCA and Jeffrey Sherlock took over. He was considered more liberal. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say liberal, but like compared to Breen. As far as, you know, industry appointed censors go. Yeah. Um, In 1956, the code was edited and it now allowed several previously taboo subjects like prostitution and relationships across different races and adultery i mean that's 
somewhat forward thinking. It would be another, what, 11 years before the Supreme Court struck down anti-miscegenation laws. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. That's something. Well, and there were different movies coming out around this time that definitely started to break some of those, like, social norms. Mm -hmm. Even though now looking back, a lot of them are very, like, hard to process (laughs) because of certain choices made in them. Um, It's still, like, starting to happen. Mm -hmm. That same year, the film Baby Doll was the first film given a PCA seal that had been condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency. Mm -hmm. Typically, they wouldn't give a, a seal to a lot of those things, if they well, were like, yeah. uh-uh. Because they're working from the same playbook. Yeah. So the League, or the Legion pushed for a ban on the film, but it did great. It got four Oscar noms. <laughs> no one cared. In 1959, the movie Some Like It Hot was not granted approval uh, by the PCA, but was still released and became a box office smash. Well, people love that Marilyn Monroe, after oh, all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then following that, uh, there were movies that were given uh, special allowances to break the code. The Holocaust film The Pawnbroker was allowed to show two scenes with topless women as long as they shortened the scenes. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, that's okay. Just less time. Also, what kind of freak is going to a Holocaust movie to like, come on, come <laughs> on, dude. No, no, thank you. And in 1966, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? had a lot of previously prohibited language. (laughs) Um, And that same year, the film Blow Up was denied approval and MGM released it anyways, and they were the first major production company to do so. The the great argument for, you know, uh, uh, the censorship board stifling creativity is that every movie you just mentioned is regarded as an all-time classic in a genre. Oh, yeah. People adore a blow up, and for good reason. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to like see what movies were like. Uh, no, gonna do this anyways, or pushed to get special allowances. It's also interesting, kind of looking into different directors, and like some directors were very like anti code, and others were like, mm, it just made me think more creatively about how to show what I wanted to show. Yeah. To sneak around what they wanted yeah. me to do. I mean, there's the, the classic story about Hitchcock going to the board yes. and, and going frame by individual frame in Psycho, saying, actually, you never see the knife go in. That was Jeffrey. Yeah. That was our, our, our new buddy Jeffrey here. Okay. Yeah, and I think so. I'm pretty sure. So uh, that year, 1959, uh, the code was replaced with an 11 bullet point code basically, of things to avoid. And basically said any film that contained one of these 11 things would be labeled with SMA, which um, was suggested for mature audiences, Ah. um, which Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was actually the first film to get this. Mm -hmm. Also, what kids are going to go to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I don't know. (laughs) That's a failure in marketing is what that is. They're going to be so bored. (laughs) So that was kind of the first major shift mm-hmm. and basically like we're going to allow whatever films to be made, mm-hmm. but we're going to put this on it if not, or if you don't follow these rules. Mm-hmm. About nine years later uh, is when we got the MPAA rating system 
that was the start of what we know now. Mm -hmm. Um, Where movies were rated G for general, M for mature, R for restricted, and X for 18 and over only. So, So we basically had anyone, might be okay for anyone under 12... If you're under 16, you got to have an adult and you got to be over 18. Mm -hmm. That's how that that went into play. Two years later, uh, they changed the M uh, to GP because there was a lot of confusion about what mature meant because that's what it stood for. Yeah. Um, So instead it went to general exhibition, but parental guidance suggested. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. GP is a lot clearer. Right. Well, then two years later, they changed it to PG. Because I think they realized this still isn't good. (laughs) Like, I understand looking at a 12-year-old and saying, mature. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. But at least I know what it stands for compared to GP. Right? PG makes much more. Uh, Does it, though? Or is it just because that's what we were born into? Parental guidance. Yeah, yeah. That's what it breaks into is when you switch it around instead of, like, general parent rental or something it's general exhibition but parental guidance suggested yeah that's six words shortened yeah, to two letters PG is parental guidance that's a lot easier yeah two words to two letters yeah, yeah. i think it makes more sense in 1984 we would get the pg-13 rating due to movies like gremlins and indiana jones and the temple of doom coming out mm-hmm. they were kind of like mm. We need something in between here. <laughs> we need something in between what we renamed the one for 12-year-olds. Yeah. For 13-year-olds. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then in 1990, X was replaced by NC-17. Mostly because of the stigma that had become associated with X and because they didn't trademark it, X Double X, triple X were being used by adult bookstores and theaters, and people were buying movie tickets to things that they didn't realize that's what they were getting, <laughs> I think. So the uh, unregulated end of, of filmmaking, shall yeah. we say. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or differently regulated, I guess would be more correct. Yeah. Yeah. One negative thing that came out of the fall of the code and the change to this rating system was that the American Humane Association's Hollywood office lost a lot of their pull. Or their office depended on the code for access to monitor movie sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the closure meant that more animal cruelty was happening on movie sets. And they couldn't go monitor it. It wasn't until like the 1980s that their sta- like level of standard that they had during the code era came back. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunate, but... Imagine what a dog's purpose would have been like if it came out in the 70s. Oh my god. But yeah, so that's that's the history of the movie codes. It, it Pre-code era films were far more hard-hitting, uh, mm-hmm. with more modern characters and issues than what, than what we often think of, like, olden movies. Yeah. But at the same time, you know directors and producers were not necessarily following it. So there's a lot of things that (laughs) stuck through or they had to get creative with. I think the most interesting thing about it, though, is that it's always referred to as the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. And though he initially started it and he was working, you know, for the office forever, once Breen took over, he was mostly just like there in the background. (laughs) He wasn't actually the one who created the strict code that we often think about Mm -hmm. when we say the movie production codes Mm -hmm. 
So I just think it's interesting that his name is the one. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of information about the, the motion picture code. And I would encourage people to just go out and... and it's so, there's so much. Mm-hmm. I had to condense. I had to say, no, I'm not going in that direction. <laughs> I mean, the the whole like visual language that it created to, to signify things they couldn't say. Yeah. Like there are so many things in old movies that mean sex. Smoking means oh, yeah. sex every time. But they just can't show it. You just yes. sort of have to know. <laughs> that, and that's all the things that like the directors had to get creative with. Mm-hmm. They had to create so many new, so much new language and understanding to get mm-hmm. those points across. And to compare it to one of our earliest episodes on the the Comics Code Authority mm-hmm. and how they both and and how when both were uh, fully implemented with you know enforcement and everything. They completely realigned what sold uh, by realigning what could make it to distribution. Mm-hmm. They, they ended similarly in that they, they were no longer commercially necessary. Yeah. Uh, but very differently in that, you know, in the case of films, you know, every bit shipping away became a classic product. But like the, the Stan Lee Spider-Man book that's about, you know, drug use that couldn't get the CCA stamp because it's about drugs, even though it was like a co-production with the U.S. government. It sucks. Yeah. It's a bad book on its own merits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I guess with that, we will be back with letters. Letters. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We can't just leave you like that. No. We've got to read some letters. Letters. So our first letter comes from Chris, who answers our prompt, which our prompt was, what's your favorite old movie? Mm-hmm. Because we talked about movies. Get it? It's connected. <laughs> I think they get it by I think now. they get it I now. think they do. Chris has two movies for us. To Hell and Back, uh, which is an autobiographical war movie about Audie Murphy. Uh, who is considered one of the most decorated soldiers of World War II. And the second movie is Alien, one of the, if not the best, science fiction horror films. So thank you, Chris. We love Alien in this house. We do love Alien. Alien's good. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, Claritic writes in to talk about Soylent Green and Forbidden Planet. Ooh. Forbidden Planet is squarely within the the uh, code era of Hollywood. Yeah. And Forbidden Planet is, of course, the the classic uh, sci-fi reimagining of uh, uh, The Tempest. Mm-hmm. That is the source of what is now the retro-future aesthetic in a lot of cases. Also notable for bringing Robbie the Robot, the, the first robot on film to be a character in their own right by many people's accounting. Yes. Of course, the the prop was just so elaborate and expensive and so beloved that Robbie went on to be not just a character, but an actor. That dude shows up in a lot. Yeah. An even bigger IMDb page than uh, the Rocky IV robot. (laughs) That robot's been in a surprising amount. That robot had an album. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Forbidden Planet had another actor that is seen in uh, that is seen in their original context, not quite how we remember them. Leslie Nielsen 
when he was still a, a square-jawed, straight-laced uh, face of authority before Airplane cast him uh, because of those roles and turned him into the uh, deadpan humorist that, that we all know and love today. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Claritic. Isaac writes in, Isaac doesn't watch a lot of old movies, uh, but loves the speech from the end of The Great Dictator uh, and just wishes everyone could see it, mm-hmm. um, especially considering how relevant it sadly is to today. And like we talked about earlier today, an anti-Nazi film from when it was dangerous to be making anti-Nazi films in America. Yes. Thanks, Isaac. Peter writes in to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just a... Uh, uh, I mean, it is a classic Western shoot 'em up, but also just some incredible uh, craftsmanship and directing in, uh, you know, the end of the trilogy that overshadows the other two to such a degree that people are kind of surprised it's the end of a trilogy. Yeah. Also, it doesn't follow the naming convention of the first two, so that's a bit different too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thanks, Peter. Uh, Crystal writes in, and Crystal is a new listener, only having started listening to us last week. Wow. Hello. Hello, Crystal. And Crystal's favorite old movie is Arsenic and Old Lace. I love Arsenic and Old Lace. Love Arsenic and Old Lace. Crystal mentions that it's a Halloween movie, which I've never really... It is. It's set on Halloween. It's set on Halloween, but I never associate it as just a (laughs) Halloween movie. Yeah. Like, that's not... I mean, they don't really deal with trick-or-treaters or no, anything. No, it's just like, ooh, spooky it, things happen. It just happens to be yeah. October 31st, yeah. Huh. Uh, but in Crystal's family, the tradition is that the women shoot the men folk out of the house, and they drink a lot of eggnog and decorate for Christmas and then watch this movie after all that eggnog. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> thanks for writing in, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Crystal. Yes, thank you very much. Our last letter we have for you today is from Kieran, returning to write about uh, both his favorite saint and his favorite old movie. Let's start with the saint prompt, and that is Saint Christopher, uh, patron saint of drivers, sailors, epilepsy, and archers, among others, but also one of the most famous dog-headed saints. Yeah. He has the head of a dog in many depictions. Yeah. This is because of a translation error of sorts. St. Christopher is from the land of Canaan. He is a Canaanite saint. However, the Latin for Canaanite is uh, Canaanaeus, which is one tiny little misspelling away from the Latin word for dog-like. Moving on to the more recent prompt, uh, Kieran's favorite old movie is Orphier, a Jean Cocteau movie from 1950, so has nothing to do with the Hollywood uh, uh, motion picture code. Yes, it does. It was produced in France. I thought you were talking about the year. So it is a uh, contemporary, shall we say, 1950s, not exactly modern anymore, but a contemporary version of the Orpheus story that has become so popular among musical theater fans over the last year and a half. Uh, <laughs> Listen to Hades Town if you don't know what we're talking about. It's good. But of course, you've got this story about a, a poet who accidentally meets death and becomes uh, the friend of death's chauffeur. And uh, his wife Eurydice dies, the chauffeur leads Orpheus through the land of the dead to appeal for her return, and wouldn't you know it, it doesn't go exactly according to plan. So as a Cocteau film, it has these stark, uh, uh, dreamlike visuals and, you know, amazing special effects, whole lot of mirror imagery, naturally. 
But uh, Kieran saw it at a very young and impressionable age, uh, and also wanted to share the a trailer for a, a recently restored print. So thank you very much. And thanks to everybody for writing in. Dear, if people want to write us a letter, where can those go? Podcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your show suggestions, your corrections, your stories, uh, some questions uh, that you might have for us, as well as responses to our usual prompts. You got a prompt for us? I would like to hear uh, how people are dealing with the events of the last few weeks, whether you are in a place like us that... Uh, our response was inadequate. And so all we can do to help save uh, uh, ourselves and the people around us and our medical infrastructure is to uh, uh, shelter in place. Or you're from a, uh, somewhere that uh, was hopefully better prepared uh, and are experiencing a, a, a different response to the, the global pandemic. I want to hear how it's affecting your life and, and what you're doing in, in response. Whether that's, you know, how, how you're dealing with your, your homebound life or whether it's affecting you professionally or, or, or if it's motivated some action for, for how you interact with the society around you. Cool. And you can send those to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Not exactly a historical topic, but it's certain. We are making history right now. I sure wish we could stop. I would like to stop. May you live in interesting times. That's how it goes, right? Uh, but while you're getting in touch with us, another way is on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. At History Honeys. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, tell us what you think in the form of a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else gives you the chance. You can also tell a friend. We're a good thing to listen to in a time of social distancing mm-hmm. and everything. I would wager either some algorithmic magic or a referral from someone she knows got Crystal in touch with us. Probably. And now we have Crystal here. That's Yay! wonderful. See? The system works. Yeah. Something else you can check out. I know uh, not everybody who listens to this show also listens to Sex Archie, and that might be because they're not interested in Riverdale. Yes. Which is a totally fair thing. Yeah. But our most recent episode on that uh, oh, yeah. feed is about something entirely different. For now, until they will soon be very related. Yes. Uh, it's a bonus episode. It's a bonus episode. Riverdale is currently on break and is about to return uh, with an episode using the music of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Yes. So we did a full hour on the history of Hedwig and its production and creation. Also, every number and a little bit about how we would like to and how we expect the show to use those musical numbers. Yes. So I would recommend everybody just give that a listen. We had a lot of fun. We joked about a third of the way through that it feels more like an episode of this show than that show. Definitely did. Yeah. And then and then it didn't. And then it we really got into our other groove. <laughs> so, it's amazing how different our shows are. Yeah. 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 So uh, that's just a quick recommendation I, I'd like to slide in front of everybody. Yeah. And I guess that's it. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.